Duke's Mayo. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. This episode was released ad-free for our patrons one day early. If you want in on the Murder Diaries goodness ad-free one day early too, head over to patreon.com slash pod or click the link in our show notes or our Instagram bio. New patrons also get a shout out in an episode. And for this episode, we want to say a big welcome and thank you to Pam. Welcome to the Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. I have a little cold today, but we're just going to work through it. The case I have for you today is the murder of John Benet Ramsey, which has been the most requested by our listeners since Paige and I started the Murder Diaries. Honestly, we avoided it for a long time because of the amount of rumors and theories there are about what really happened. You can literally spend years going down rabbit holes on some of these arguments. But the thing is, no matter how convincing a theory might be, John Bonet Ramsey's murder remains unsolved to this day, and she deserves to have her story told, and not in the way that the true crime community has done so over the years, inadvertently immortalizing her as this child beauty queen. Because when it comes down to it, John Bonet Ramsey was a six year old girl whose life and future were stolen from her. This is her story. To think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. It's 1996 in Boulder, Colorado. The Ramsey family of four lives on 749 15th Street in an 11,000 square foot, five bed and eight bath red brick home with tall iron gates and a big green lawn with a former beauty queen mother, pageant queen daughter, dutiful son, and a well-earning father. The Ramsey family seems like the epitome of the American dream, right? But we all know that's not how these stories usually end. Instead, the family's idyllic life was about to come to a screeching halt. On the morning of December 26, 1996, the day after Christmas, At 5.52 a.m., police received a 911 call from Patricia Ramsey. That's JonBenet Ramsey's mother. She told them she woke up around 5.45 a.m. to make coffee and instead found a ransom note demanding money in exchange for her daughter and that her daughter, JonBenet Ramsey, was gone. Two police officers responded to the call and showed up at the scene within three minutes of it having been made. Patricia said about notifying family and friends about her precious daughter's disappearance. The police conducted a quick sweep of the house and let the family know that they couldn't find any signs of forced entry. While these officers are sweeping the house at around 7.30 a.m., John Ramsey, that's John Bonet's namesake, her father, immediately started making arrangements to pay the ransom. The ransom note Patsy had found demanded, very specifically, $118,000. John pointed out to the police on the scene that that sum, $118,000, 
that was being demanded was almost the exact amount as the Christmas bonus he'd earned the year before. The ransom note was a handwritten letter about two and a half pages long. Upon further investigation around the house, those officers found that that letter had been written with a pen and notepad from the Ramsey home. The police even found a practice draft right there in the home. It claimed that the perpetrators of the crime were, quote, a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. But I'll read you the whole note later on. Right now, let's focus on the crime scene. So back at the Ramsey house, more and more police start arriving, including a forensics team. Since no one could have guessed that John Bonet might still be in the house, the forensics team only cordoned off her bedroom as a crime scene. In the midst of this chaos and the swarm of police teams, the family started inviting over friends to support them. Not long after that, the family minister arrived and a victim's advocate was summoned by the police. The FBI was called in surprisingly quickly on this case, perhaps because it involved the kidnapping of a child and the presence of a ransom note. The police and the FBI coordinated together to set up a station to take any incoming calls from the kidnappers and wiretap the phone in the house. But a call never came. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. FBI officers left soon after helping set up the wiretap on the phone line, leaving an additional police officer stationed at the house. Around 1 p.m., a police officer decided to check around the house again. He asked John and one of the family's good friends named Fleet White, who was at the scene to join him on a thorough top-to-bottom search. He then asked them to point out anything that might look disturbed or that looked wrong or out of place, anything the police might have missed. Keep in mind, the 911 call came in just before six in the morning. So it's been about half a day since the house became a busy crime scene. John and Fleet take a look around the house again. And this time, they decide to take a good look down in the basement of the home. Remember, this is an 11,000 square foot home. It's huge. The basement itself was made up of several smaller rooms. One of the spaces had a new train table built in on a table for the kids to play with sort of a Christmas present for them. Other spaces were just used for storage with old paint cans, arts and crafts, and decorations strewn about. Exactly what you might envision a typical family basement to look like, at least in a house this big. And it was John who ended up opening the latch door in one of these basement rooms police had decided not to go through earlier that morning. The door led to one of the back rooms that the Ramsey used as a storage space. During the first sweep of the house, an officer assigned to the case, Officer Rick French, admitted 
that he'd walked right up to the basement door, but saw it was secured with a wooden latch and decided not to go inside, explaining that he was looking for exit routes. Alongside storage, the room was also used by Patsy and John as a secret place in which they had stored their kids' Christmas presents. In fact, just one day earlier, it had been full to the brim of gifts for the kids to open on Christmas morning. But by the time the officers searched the room, it should have been empty. Instead, on the basement floor, John found JonBenet's tiny body. JonBenet was laying on her back on the floor with her hands bound together above her head. The rope was a kind of nylon cord and it was tied in such a way that it formed a kind of makeshift garage with a broken off paintbrush. Some of the bristles from this brush later ended up being found among Patsy's art supplies. JonBenet also had black duct tape covering her mouth and her favorite little white blanket was covering her chest. She was clothed under her blanket, wearing a long-sleeved white knit shirt with a shiny embroidered silver star, long underwear, and a gold cross necklace. Her autopsy would later reveal that JonBenet had a skull fracture, indicating some form of blunt force trauma, and there were no signs of a sexual crime. Seeing his tiny six-year-old daughter like this, John Ramsey immediately started trying to free John Binet. He picked her up in his arms and brought her upstairs, later down on the living room floor in front of shocked police and friends. At some point in the middle of all of this, he also pulled the tape off her mouth. But any attempts to save her were in vain because it was clear to everybody she'd been dead for a while. She was pale and cold to the touch. With the FBI already having been called in so quickly, the case became high profile from the very beginning. Now that John Binet had been found, the police tried to preserve and cordon off the basement as best they could. Except the house was a mess after having had a swarm of people traipse around the house all day long. By then, they knew the crime scene had already been contaminated, but they wanted to preserve whatever evidence was left they quickly found what they believed to be an important piece of evidence, the imprint of a high-tech shoe near where JonBenet's body had been found. They also discovered a window that was broken in that small basement room. However, John told investigators he'd broken it when he locked himself out of the house and had to find a way inside sometime earlier. He told them that he couldn't remember if he had ever fixed it because he was known to lose his keys now and then. Investigators followed up with this and ended up checking the window grate on the outside, finding that there was a spider web on it, suggesting it hadn't been disturbed and it had been some time since someone passed through that window. And besides the spider web, they weren't able to find any other signs that it had been disturbed. There was even some dust and debris around the windowsill, both on the inside and the outside. The same thing goes for the foliage around the outside of the window, when detectives checked the ground, it all looked very undisturbed and neat. But all of this seemed contrary to what they found on the inside of the room itself. There was a suitcase positioned up against the window, almost like someone would have been able to use it to climb in and out through the window. Another additional piece of evidence they found in the basement, but not in the room itself, was a palm print on the wine cellar door that didn't match any of the family or friends that had been in the house that day. At about 10.45 p.m. that night, several hours after John Binet was found, her body was moved out of the living room by the coroner's team to take her for an autopsy. 
During the autopsy, the coroner was able to rule the cause of death as, quote, asphyxia by strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. JonBenet also seemed to have been strangled twice. No traces of semen were found anywhere on her body. But the medical examiner did find signs of vaginal injuries. And they also found urine stains and several red stains that looked like blood in her underwear. The medical examiner also reported that her pubic area appeared to have been wiped with a cloth. She also had multiple unidentified abrasions to her neck, cheek, legs, and other body parts. A theory developed by Detective Lou Smith much later on suggested that the marks on her cheeks may have been electrical burns from a stun gun. What the autopsy also revealed is a detail that became one of the most crucial and debated facts of this case her stomach contents. They showed signs that she had been eating what looked like, quote, vegetable or fruit material that may represent pineapple shortly before her death. There was a bowl with pineapple in it found and photographed in the kitchen, but no one in the family remembered putting it there. When it was fingerprinted by police, they ended up finding only one set of fingerprints on the bowl, those of John Bonet's older nine-year-old brother, Burke. The Ramseys had claimed that Burke had been asleep all night and slept through the beginning of the morning. However, in the enhanced 911 recordings taken from Patsy's call that morning, people agree that they can hear Burke's voice in the background. Because of the Ramsey family's status and the strange circumstances surrounding John Bonet's death, the case quickly became a media circus. The Ramseys initially cooperated with the police and went to the police station to give interviews, blood samples, handwriting samples, and hair samples. A couple days after the murder, they traveled to Atlanta, which was their old hometown. And it's there that they began making preparations for John Bonet's funeral, which was held on December 31st, 1996 in Marietta, Georgia. This is the same place John Bonet's older half-sister from John's first marriage had previously died in a car accident and was also buried. Then on January 1st, 1997, New Year's Day, Patsy and John Ramsey gave a 45-minute interview with CNN from where they were staying in Atlanta. In it, they said they were staying with family and while they didn't point the finger at anyone for their daughter's murder, they warned the residents of Boulder, Colorado that there was a dangerous killer on the loose. They also spoke of their faith and how much they loved John Bonet. What no one knew at the time was that the police were beyond shocked they'd gone on air and done an interview because they'd claimed to be too emotional to talk to police after their initial police station interviews. Well, then that scene in an interview was really contradictory then to what they were telling police. That's exactly what the police were thinking. So on the 2nd of January, a team of five investigators flew from Boulder to Atlanta in an attempt to speak to the family again. The entire Ramsey family ended up returning to Boulder the day after. This was right around the time when police released the information to the media that the ransom note was written on a pen and paper found in the Ramsey house, clearly indicating it had been written after her murder. With all of this information now public, Patsy and John did agree to a further formal interview, but they had lawyers involved by then, and they refused to be interviewed separately. In fact, they wouldn't agree to be interviewed separately until about four months after John Bonet's death. Just a few days before those interviews, 
They put an ad in the newspaper stating they were offering a $100,000 reward in exchange for any information leading to an arrest in the case of their daughter's murder. But nothing more ever came of this. Obviously, we can already see that this case is becoming very chaotic. And now that we've discussed the specifics of that day, let's talk about the theories both police and the FBI had started to develop. Well, despite having evidence like that handprint, its origins were very hard to narrow down. The morning of the murder, the crime scene was already overrun with handfuls of people wandering around the home. The Ramseys were a very social and engaged family, and they had guests over all the time. So trying to figure out what actually belonged to the crime scene and what didn't was nearly impossible. The only concrete evidence they had was what was found on John Bonet's body. Then there was the ransom note. It had become a central part of the case. That two and a half page letter was so long that law enforcement struggled to believe anyone could have written it at the scene of the crime, despite the indentations left on the notepad at the house. On top of that, There's that ransom amount mentioned in the letter. The $118,000. Yes. It was so close to John's previous Christmas bonus that police agreed whoever committed the crime and wrote the note had to have some inside information on the family. That or they had inside information on employees at John's company, Access Graphics. And I've actually got the exact contents of the ransom note for you. So here it goes. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup for your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. 
Can I just say that that sounds like a scorned wife? Can I just say that it does? And can I also say that this makes no, it just doesn't make sense that somebody that would write that note would also leave her dead in the basement. Like this makes no sense. For those familiar with this case, like you and I, we know that suspicion ended up being primarily directed at the Ramsey family, especially because of the ransom note. It was the note that the Boulder police concentrated on almost exclusively. Having handwriting samples from all of the family members, they compared them. And when they did their analysis, they noticed they weren't able to rule out Patsy's handwriting. And when they dusted the note for fingerprints, the only ones they found were those that belonged to Patsy and a member of law enforcement who handled the note at the scene. Additionally, that practice draft they found in the house also made them very suspicious. It all sounded like movie dialogue. When the note was made public, some theories arose for what movies might have been a source of inspiration like Dirty Harry or Ransom. The note also contained unusual amounts of exclamation marks and was unnaturally long for a ransom note. I mean, you heard it. It's two and a half pages long. It's a mouthful. When investigators realized that they couldn't rule out Patsy's handwriting as the author, they called her in for more testing but all results were completely inconclusive. They really couldn't rule Patsy either in or out. Argued off the basis of about six certified handwriting experts, a federal court ended up ruling it highly unlikely that it actually was Patsy Ramsey who wrote this ransom note. But other people, like board-certified pathologist Michael Badden, still argued that he'd never seen a ransom note like this in his 60 years of working in the forensic field, and that it just couldn't have been written by an outside stranger. Now, with all of the suspicion circulating, the Ramsey family, perhaps naturally, ended up going off the radar and trying to disappear from the public eye. But that didn't stop criticism toward the family becoming more and more visible in the press and media, as well as law enforcement. Due to how contaminated the crime scene was and how late the formal interviews came into play, the lack of evidence meant there was barely anything useful to go off of. When the Ramseys completely shut down and declined to be further involved in the case, the police realized they needed to broaden the scope of the investigation. They began to focus on different theories, and by October 1997, almost a year after the crime, they had a total of 1,600 persons of interest in the case. There were such divided opinions about the murder, even within the Colorado Bureau of Investigations. Detective Lou Smith was a Colorado detective known for working on high-profile cases, such as the murder of Kelsey Grammer's younger sister, and ended up getting called out of retirement to come in and work on the case for the Boulder County District Attorney's Office. He became one of the first people to vehemently argue the intruder theory. In 1998, he presented his case to the Boulder Police and too many staff members in the district attorney's office, strongly arguing that all of the evidence they had pointed away from the Ramsey family. Part of this theory he laid out for everybody present was based on the fact that there had been two windows at the house left slightly open. This was done for electrical cords to be able to run through and power up the Christmas lights on the outside of the house. And that broken window in the basement also came up. On top of that, there was also one unlocked door. Smith centered his theory around the broken out window in the basement and claimed that that suitcase, you remember the one pressed up against the wall near the window? Mm -hmm. That suitcase proved that someone had entered and gotten out that way, 
despite the intact spiderweb and detectives not being able to find any signs of a new disturbance. He also argued that those little unidentified abrasions on JonBenet's cheeks found by the coroner could be marks from something like a stun gun and that this is what could have been used to subdue her. We know, though, that none of this really seemed to stick with the Boulder Police Force, though. And because of that, ultimately, both lead investigators on the case, Lou Smith and Steve Thomas, ended up resigning. Steve Thomas believed that the district attorney's office was messing up the case the police were making against the Ramsey family, and he felt the police weren't supported and unable to proceed with the case against them. Meanwhile, Lou Smith felt they were making a mistake and had completely overlooked the theory of it having been an intruder. The timing of Lou Smith's resignation was perfectly calculated. He quit in 1998, about five days before a grand jury was about to convene against the Ramseys. But all of this really does reflect how tangled and messy this case got. After those resignations, the case got really cold. While there was still significant interest in the case from the media and the public, only a few official announcements were made over the coming years. Fast forward to 2003, and there was a development in the case. Although no semen was found on JonBenet's body, investigators were never able to definitively rule out any evidence of a sexual motive in the crime. In December of that year, 2003, police announced that due to the advances in DNA technology, they had been able to collect a DNA sample from JonBenet's underwear. The DNA was of an unknown male. So we finally have some DNA. Except it didn't match anyone in CODIS. However, this did mean they were able to rule out any of the men in the family as the contributors. And later on, they were able to eliminate many of the men close to the family. After this new discovery of DNA evidence, the Boulder County District Attorney, Mary Lacey, who took over the investigation from the police back in 2002, was forced to come out and publicly apologize to the family for having stated she thought the Ramseys were guilty. This meant that the family were publicly exonerated. And as a result, it did seem to quiet down a lot of the family's critics within the police force as well. Despite the DNA, there are many people who remain suspicious of various members of the Ramsey family. This reminds me about the pineapple theory. This is that theory in relation to Burke Ramsey. The critical piece of forensic evidence cited in this theory is that Burke's fingerprint is on the bowl of pineapple. Pineapple was Jean Bonnet's favorite snack. Also with this theory, it's claimed that the killer must have been very familiar with Jean Bonnet in order to have fed her her favorite snack right before the murder. When the fingerprint evidence was released to the public in 1998, the police were forced to publicly state that Burke, who was just nine years old at the time, definitely wasn't a suspect. And they've had to continue to reiterate this point over the last 20-something years, but many still strongly subscribe to this theory. In those 20-something years, more evidence has come out about Burke, but it's purely circumstantial. And much of it can be explained by the fact that Burke lived in the house with John Bonet, excusing any other markers of him in the basement and throughout the house. The general consensus among people who point the finger at Burke is that he killed John Bonet either accidentally or on purpose, and that his parents then worked to cover it up. This would explain the strange ransom note and why it was written on the pen and pad of paper found in the Ramsey house. People also feel it would explain why John Bonet's body was covered by a blanket, something a murderer does when they struggle to look at what they've done. Weight was added to the family cover-up theory when a detective who attended the scene on the day of the murder talked about how John acted when he found John Bonet. 
The officer claimed that John had carried John Binet's body upstairs, but he didn't cradle her as you might have expected. Instead, he held her body away from himself as if he didn't want to touch her. Police also found out later that John had called his personal pilot twice that day, suggesting he may have been trying to get him and his family out of there. Another tidbit I already mentioned earlier is that people believe they can hear Burke's voice in the background on the recorded 911 call, stating, what did you find? Even though Patsy claimed Burke didn't get out of bed until hours after the 911 call. Another theory people have about the family surrounds Patsy Ramsey herself. Even though Patsy had no history of any kind of uncontrolled anger, some people believe that Patsy hit John Bonet in a fit of rage and accidentally killed her. They claim that the fractures to her skull support this theory, as well as the mystery of the ransom note. They also assert that Patsy then strangled John Bonet to cover up that she had been hit. It has been suggested in the years since the murder that John Bonet was known to be a bedwetter. They believe that Patsy had some controlling pageant mom tendencies, and maybe she was angry and violent behind the closed doors. And while we can't deny that these theories would explain a lot of the Ramsey's strange behavior around the time of the murder, there are a lot of holes in these theories too. The most obvious one being that none of the physical evidence on John Bonet's body supports these theories. For starters, a problem with the pineapple bowl theory is that we know everyone went around touching things in the kitchen. This notion that the Ramseys having been involved is widely accepted by the public despite the DNA evidence pointing away from it. But in opposition to the theory is the opinion of John E. Douglas, the famous criminal profiler and retired FBI unit chief that inspired shows like Mindhunter. He strongly argued against this theory, stating that even though there is a high statistical probability family is involved when a child is killed, the mutilation of John Bonet's body after her death strongly suggests that the family wasn't involved. He commented to CNN after the fact that he'd rarely seen so much mutilation that could be attributed to a close family member. That brings me to a couple of notable suspects in the case. Do you remember the guy Fleet White who was looking around the house with John when they found the body? Well, that evening before John Bonet was murdered, they'd been at his house for a Christmas party. One of the earliest suspects in the case outside of the family actually was the guy who dressed as Santa Claus at Fleet White's party. A couple of people remarked that they had seen him whispering things to John Bonet at the party. But as far as we know, when the police ended up getting his DNA, he was ruled out as a suspect. Another notable suspect was Michael Helgoth, who died of suicide after John Bonet's death, but he was exonerated through DNA evidence too. In later years, police were able to extract more and more biological evidence from the swabs taken at the crime scene. And in 2010, police decided to take a fresh look at the case. Remember how I mentioned that the grand jury was about to be convened back in 1998 when one of the lead detectives quit? Well, in 2013, it was also revealed through some of the case documents being unsealed that a grand jury back in 1999 actually had decided to indict John and Patsy Ramsey on two counts each of child abuse. The document stated that as per the law, they, quote, did unlawfully, knowingly, and recklessly permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation that posed a threat of injury to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Benet Ramsey, a child under the age of 16. Testimony was given by forensic expert Henry Lee, who's one of the world's foremost forensic scientists known for working on the O.J. Simpson case and Lacey Peterson's case, 
The grand jury also heard the DNA specialist, Barry Sheck, who contrastingly worked on O.J. Simpson's defense team and currently serves as the director of the Innocence Project. At the time of the hearing in 1999, the serving district attorney refused to sign off the indictment, stating that the evidence was insufficient for prosecution. In 2002, the statute of limitations on the grand jury's charges expired, but up until then, the public had been led to believe that the grand jury investigation had been inconclusive. One of the most recent updates in the case comes from 2016. That is when the DNA sample from JonBenet's underwear was analyzed again with newer, more sensitive techniques. At the time, the results showed genetic markers from two separate individuals. However, they've been unable to find a match in any known offenders' databases or against any other DNA they sampled throughout the years of the investigation. Despite there being no match, the prospect of two separate people being involved in the crime would totally change the premise of the whole case. On top of that, JonBenet's case has received a huge amount of false confessions. One of the most notable cases of a false confession was that of 41-year-old schoolteacher Alexis Reich, then known as John Mark Carr. He claimed he drugged, sexually assaulted, and murdered JonBenet in the family home. However, he wasn't able to provide any details that hadn't been released to the media, and his DNA didn't match the forensic evidence found on her body. So the police ended up quickly ruling him out. The Ramseys have filed a number of defamation lawsuits throughout the years as well. In 2016, Burke Ramsey filed a $150 million lawsuit against Werner Spitz, who was the forensic pathologist who worked on the John F. Kennedy assassination. And he testified in the Casey Anthony trial when he claimed that Burke Ramsey is the person who killed his sister in an interview with CBS Detroit. Burke's lawyers ended up including CBS, their whole production company, and seven experts in a separate civil lawsuit as well, stating defamation of character. Under this lawsuit, he sued for a total of $250 million in compensatory damages and $500 million in punitive damages. After a judge denied CBS's motion to dismiss the lawsuit, it ended up being settled, quote, to the satisfaction of all parties in 2018. To this day, JonBenet's murder remains unsolved. And even though there have been updates in the case in recent years, like the release of new DNA profiles, it's unclear how much work is actively being done on the case. There are a lot of scientists who have spoken out in recent years campaigning for law enforcement to put in more legwork to get a match in the case. JonBenet's father, John, even spoke out stating that he believes there's a lot of other good DNA evidence in the possession of the Boulder Police Department that could help in solving the case. All we can really hope for right now is that there will someday be a DNA match that will finally put the theories to rest and provide justice to John Bonet and her family. We hope someday soon we'll be able to talk about this case with some more answers. Until then, for more episodes like this, head over to patreon.com slash Diaries. There you'll find all of our bonus episodes and more Murder Diaries goodness. Until our next episode, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.